Welcome. I am attorney Brad Koffel, and this is for the defense. Every Sunday at 11 a.m., I break down current legal cases and issues that are in the news. This is my hobby. I nerd out on this stuff. I've been practicing criminal and DUI law in the courts of Central Ohio for 23 years. We have five lawyers at the Coffle Law Firm that deal with alcohol, drugs, sex, and greed cases, kind of the four pillars of criminal law. We do this every day, and we represent moms and dads and kids who get arrested and charged with crimes. We'll put this show up on our law firm's website every Monday um, at CoffleLaw.com, K-O-F-F-E-L-L-A-W.com, every Monday. If you want to hear the show in its entirety. In the studio today is another criminal defense lawyer who works with me in a lot of my cases, Eric Willison. Eric, good morning. Good morning to you. Eric handles a lot of our appellate work. You know, Eric should be an author. He's very witty, uh, very sharp legal mind, and uh, we use him a lot on our research and writing and throws an element of snark into the writing. And Eric, as we say, that that snark is what gives, uh, kind of catches judges uh, and prosecutors, they'll, they'll, not only will they see the snarkiness, but they'll... They'll continue reading our briefs, which I think is kind of kind of brilliant. Well, you can't use highlighter on the briefs, so <laughs> so the snark works. Um, so what we're going to talk about, you know, last Sunday we talked about DUI, we talked about fireworks and and uh, the Fourth of July and all the the attendant uh, possible criminal offenses that that go along with that. But there's there's one thing that that came out of last Sunday's show that kind of surprised me and it surprised a lot of people is that uh, in in Franklin County. We have more DUI arrests than any other county in Ohio, okay? And not just a little, uh, a lot more. And I think last week I mentioned that there were year-to-date just over 1,000, almost 1,100 people charged with drunk driving in Franklin County. And to put that into perspective, Cuyahoga County had 50% less than that. They had 577 Hamilton County had even less than that. They only had 390 people. So uh, Cleveland area has half the number of DUI arrests as Franklin County. Cincinnati area, um, two and a half times, uh, we have two and a, two and a half times as, as many as they do. And Delaware County, really, um, we consider, you know, such a densely populated area, Eric, and, and, and DUI in Delaware County is very prolific. But really, you know, less than 300 people. Uh, in Delaware County. So it's just seems to be um, Franklin County, granted, is such a big county, but um, so is Cuyahoga and Hamilton County. And we talked a little bit about last time um, on why we may have these high numbers. And we can attribute it to, um, you know, the density in our in our county. We're not far flung. Uh, you know, a lot of Cleveland, uh, a lot of Cleveland metro areas outside Cuyahoga County and Hamilton County. A lot of people live outside of those surrounding counties, but it's still alarming. Uh, the enforcement for DUI is huge in Franklin County. But we're going to talk today, um, Eric and I, we're really going to want to peel back DUI. And it's easily the number one question that I get, Eric, and I'm not sure if you get this question a lot too, but what do you do on a DUI traffic stop? So uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Um, but first, Morgan, good morning. Good morning. Morgan is our producer, and I promised Morgan when I came in, I said, you know, we're gonna. How much do you know about DUI? And and Morgan, I don't think you know uh, much. You probably just no. the your average citizen, right? I have no experience either with being charged with one or anything. Even do close. you consume alcohol? Do you consider? Do you, do you consume uh, a, a, any amount of alcohol at all? I do, but not daily. Yeah, well, that's fine. I mean, you know, most people. 
most people, uh, you know, what's surprising is when we try DUI cases to jurors, how hard it is. And Eric, I don't know if you found this, but how hard it is to find jurors uh, who consume alcohol. Or who will admit to it. Or will admit it. Really? It's, it, it is hard. Uh, it seems like there are more jurors, potential jurors that are related to law enforcement than will admit to drinking alcohol. It makes it very difficult to pick a jury in a DUI case. But Morgan, yes. um, so let's just assume for the moment, let's just have a, a little scenario here that, uh, what do you like? Do you like beer, wine? Beer. Beer. So you've had, uh, let's say that you've had uh, two beers. Make it very safe. Okay? Yeah. You've had two beers um, over an hour, hour and a half, and you're leaving wherever you might be coming from, uh, and it's 11 o'clock at night, and the lights come on behind you, all right? Mm-hmm. What, what's your, what happens when, when you have a traffic stop and someone's behind, when a police officer is pulling you over, and I assume you've been pulled over by police before yeah, for something, speeding, whatever, mm-hmm. what happens to your, your body, your emotional reaction, your, 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 the whole central nervous system? Uh, I immediately get nervous. Very nervous. So, yes. and it affects your speech, your thinking. Um, I'm just thinking, act normal, act normal. <laughs> and the cop comes up to the driver's side window and uh, asks for your license, registration, insurance. And by the way, uh, we recommend that that uh, we recommend all our clients that they keep their insurance card and their registration paperclip together in the visor. Make it very easy to get mm. get that because that is the first test. It's called a divided attention test. They're asking you for three things, and the theory behind that request is that people who are intoxicated will only do one or two of them. So you're actually being tested at that point at a time that you don't even realize you're being tested. And it's wow. the, it's the, it's the, but by now, by the time that the officers come up to your driver's side window, he or she's actually moved through the first two stages of the DUI investigation. The first stage is the vehicle in motion. You know, they're observing your vehicle to see how you're driving. And the number one thing that we see, the number one moving violation that we see is is weaving, uh, not staying within your marked lanes. Um, and the second stage of the DO investigation they're looking for, Eric? Well, they're looking for probable cause at that point to arrest you and take you back to the station. And in order to do that, they're going to give you what are called field sobriety tests. Well, this, uh, and the, they are moving towards that, but the stopping sequence is the second phase of the DUI investigation. And so when those lights come on behind you, they're going to look and see how you, uh, pr- whether or not you perceive those emergency lights behind you. How, so, how quickly you perceive them. How, how, how quickly you pull over, whether or not you pull over in a safe and, and controlled manner whether you use your left blinker and pull to the right or use your right blinker and go to the left, whether or not you strike the curb, whether or not you leave enough room for the cruiser behind you. So mm-hmm. by the time that the police officers actually come up to the window, they've already looked at you in two separate distinct investigative phases. Watched your driving, watched your stopping. Now we've got the driver's contact. Here they're going to look, they're going to see, what do I smell? Uh, what do I see? Uh, bloodshot glassy eyes what do i hear slurred speech and um, but they're going to ask you questions as eric alluded to earlier they're going to divide your attention and they're going to ask you for your license registration insurance but then at the same time as you start to look for those they go where are you coming from where are you going they're now dividing your attention to see how well Mm. you can handle that and as you're looking for things they're not going to describe it in their police report as looking for those items they're going to describe it as fumbling for those items Ah. they have these police adjectives so um when we when we read these police reports and when really this is the first place on on a police report where 
where we as defense attorneys are going to start to see the evidence start to hit the reports and we start to see some some evidence start to stick on our client. After the break, uh, we are going to talk about the next phase of a DUI investigation. We're going to see how Morgan does. Um, do you have to get out of the car? And then when you get out of the car, do you have to do the field sobriety test? This is Brad Koffel and Eric Willison for the defense, 610 WTVN. Welcome back. I'm attorney Brad Koffel, and this is for the defense. With me in the studio is attorney Eric Willison with the Koffel Law Firm. Every Sunday, we're breaking down criminal law issues, things that affect families, moms, dads, kids. And uh, right before the uh, break, uh, we had our producer Morgan, and we were going through a, uh, a situation involving a routine DUI traffic stop. And gotcha. what do you do? Um, what are police officers looking for? And we've kind of moved through the first fa- first two phases was the, the vehicle in motion, and that's the, the police officers looking to see how you're driving. Um, they're going to look and see how you bring your vehicle to a stop. It's called this traffic, uh, the, the stopping sequence, rather. And uh, we just finished with Morgan. Uh, she was behind the wheel, and uh, it's the driver's side contact. And this is the, the classic indicia of impairment that shows up in the police reports, the red glassy eyes, the, the bloodshot eyes, the slurred speech, the odor of alcohol, fumbling for requested items and the like. These terms, I think, should be pre-printed on all police forms. I, and I think they may be pre-printed. I, <laughs> I have seen many police reports uh, where my client is a he and the report says a oh, she. And that's I, not good. I've actually had police reports with the fellow's name from the the last DUI arrest still in the report. So, yes, there is a, there are a lot of what we call Xerox symptoms where they, they keep showing up in all these police reports. And sometimes they forget to change the names. Cutting and pasting. <laughs> Uh, cut and paste. Uh, so now, Morgan, uh, yes. the trooper, says, uh, ma'am, uh, I'd like you to step out of the vehicle and uh, do some field sobriety tests. We'll see if you're okay to drive. Okay. Do you have to get out of your car? No. Why? What do you do? You just sit there and hold on the steering wheel and you don't have to get out of your car. You're getting out. Uh, either you're going to get out voluntarily. You do have to get out of your car. Okay. Uh, or, uh, police officers love to use their mag lights, the back end of the mag lights to, to smash out a window and bring you out, but they'll try to cajole you out. Right. Uh, they do have, they do have the Supreme court authority under Pennsylvania versus MIMS uh, to force you to get out of the vehicle. Yeah. We have a, our car is not our castle and, uh, you, you have to get out of your car. So, so far, Morgan. Uh, Clearly, I've you have been a, you've been charged with obstruction <laughs> yeah. or <laughs> resisting arrest. So you're so far your legal yeah. fees going up. Yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> we'll see how you do the next. <laughs> now you're out, and, and now the officer is going to decide. Um, he's already decided to do field sobriety tests. The moment they ask you to get out, they're going to do the standard field sobriety test. Um, and most officers have the standard battery that they're going to go through the same sequence so um sometimes they're going to do the pin in front of the eyes now that's the horizontal gaze nystagmus do you morgan do you have any idea what a police officer is looking for on the on the pin in front of the eye test um if you're able to follow it correctly if your eye follows that is true what they're looking for is whether or not your eye moves your eyeballs move and track the pin like a marble over glass, okay. nice and smooth, or like a marble over sandpaper. 
if your eyeballs move like a marble over sandpaper, the presumption is that you are impaired by alcohol. But there are many, many other causes of nystagmus. And uh, Eric, you, you know a few. Concussions can cause nystagmus. There's, yeah, the, nystagmus is the involuntary jerking of the eyeballs as they try to follow an object in motion. And that's what they're looking for. And so you do that test. You don't know how you did. They don't tell you the results, which is kind of unnerving as, as well right yeah. now. And now they've, they're moving on to the walk and turn test. Now, Morgan, mm-hmm. if we wanted to design a test that was very difficult to do, we want to see how you walk. Would you design a test where you, you want to make it difficult, where you walked normally nine steps, turned around and walked back normally nine steps? Or if you wanted to make it really kind of tough, would you have someone walk like on a railroad line or on a log, right foot in front of left foot, arms to your side? Heel and toe touching. The second one would definitely be more challenging. Well, guess what? That's what we. That's what the police do. They put us into these, this this exercise, as they say, uh, right foot in front of your left foot. Uh, do you have to do these field sobriety tests? I guess we forgot to ask you that. Do you even have to do these field sobriety tests? I would imagine if you refuse, they would just take you back to the station. True. Yeah, they will. They will take you back. I don't know that I've ever seen or heard of a situation where someone says, "I'm not doing your field sobriety test," which of which there is no lawful requirement okay. that motorists in Ohio take roadside field sobriety tests. In fact, I'm not aware of any law in the country where you have to do uh, roadside field sobriety tests. Uh, and th- as Morgan correctly pointed out, Erica. Eric, you you now are on your way to jail, but what have you done wrong? Well, nothing as yet, but the battle is not fought there by the side of the road. The battle is going to be fought at a suppression hearing later on down the road where your attorney will say that that the evidence that they've gathered in the arrest was uh, in violation of the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. But but, my, 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 my point is this, and this is what kind of bugs me. If there's no lawful requirement to do these field sobriety tests, they're asking you to do a field sobriety test to see whether or not you're under the influence of alcohol or yeah. other drugs. You say no. And now they handcuff you, put you back in the cruiser. They have no new evidence of impairment. No, that's true. There's no lawful requirement that you do these. But now you're under arrest and you're going to jail. Uh, and it is, a, it, is, it is exactly where we want our clients to, not where we want them to be, don't necessarily want them to be under arrest, but... We don't want him to do these field sobriety tests. The, okay. the mistake that most people make is they try to talk their way out of these things. They try to test their way out of these things by the side of the road. All they're doing is digging their own evidentiary grave deeper and deeper. The best thing to do, strangely, is to get arrested as quickly as possible. Oh, yeah. hmm. It seems it's counterintuitive, but uh, you know, in my experience, it's been once they ask you to get out of, the, out of your car, you're done. Yeah, this is the thing. There, there's really no penalty for a police officer who arrests somebody who smells like alcohol. But where there is a penalty for a police officer is if they smell like alcohol and then the police officer says, eh, well, I'll let him go. And then they drive about three blocks on and they kill some kid. Yep. Yeah. By, they've, by the time they've made a decision to, to have you get out of your car, uh, you're, 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 going to, you're going to the police station. You're either going to do the, go to the police station after doing these very difficult exercises 
or you're going to the police station by refusing to do these very difficult exercises. And you have to accept that because the moment you, if you, if you're still trying to talk your way out again, you're digging your grave, just accept the fact that you're going to be arrested. Now that does not mean you're going to jail for the night. 80 to 90% of these people, when they get back to the police station, they fill out some forms, they get asked to do another test. And then they say, Hey, is there anybody that can come and pick you up? And usually there is. Yeah. You're listening to For the Defense with attorney Brad Koffel and the Koffel Law Firm every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. We're breaking down DUI uh, and Franklin County is the number one county in the state of Ohio for DUI arrests and enforcement by a wide, wide margin. We're talking about these roadside field sobriety tests. There's a whole science uh, behind these things, and, and there's one yet that we haven't mentioned, and that's the one leg stand. Um, I don't know how what relationship standing on one leg scared out of your mind <laughs> yeah on the side of a road at one o'clock in the morning has to do with the ability to drive a car and morgan let me ask you when you got your driver's license when you're 16 how'd you do on your one leg stand test didn't have to do one didn't have well i mean it, you, what do you mean you didn't have to do one? i mean you gotta, uh, you gotta the police want to check you out see if you're okay to drive and nope. standing one leg has to have some sort of relationship to I was never asked. How'd you do on your one-leg stand test when you got your driver's license, Eric? I did very well, but the man wondered what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) You were establishing your baseline for for future benefit. Exactly. If you want to do that, do horribly on your one-leg stand. We are going to talk about a 1977 study and a 1981 study after the break on where these field sobriety tests came from. They came from pseudoscience. Fascinating. Brad Koffel for the defense. 610 WTVN. Welcome. I'm attorney Brad Koffel. This is for the defense. Every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., I break down current legal cases and issues that are in the news. Uh, I've said this before. I'll probably say this all the way to uh, my grave. This is my hobby. I love the practice of law. I nerd out on this stuff. I've been practicing criminal and DUI law in the courts of Central Ohio for about 23 years. We have five lawyers at the Call of a Law Firm that deals with alcohol, drugs, sex, and greed cases, what we consider the four pillars of criminal law, and we deal with it every day of the year. So we are very active in uh, Central Ohio, and we try to bring our experiences in working with families to the listeners so that uh, maybe all of us can learn a little uh, on the backs of, of uh, unfortunate families uh, who've had to deal with a a son or a daughter with a drug issue or an alcohol issue or a mom or dad with a drug or alcohol issue and when they have to go to the criminal courts. So in the studio today is another criminal defense lawyer who works with me in a lot of my cases, Eric Willison. Eric, welcome back. Good morning. We were talking about DUI and field sobriety tests. And I've I teased this a little bit last week on last week's show. We were talking about the alarming number of DUI arrests in Franklin County, and we have twice as many as Cuyahoga County and two and a half times as many as Hamilton County. And um, I mentioned that I wanted to dig into the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's findings um, on field sobriety tests. And what happened uh, in the 70s uh, was that we were having a, a, a big spike on traffic fatalities in America. Coming out of the 60s and 70s, we had a confluence of highway fatalities, high speed, alcohol, drugs, and it culminated into 
the need for the United States Department of Transportation to, to help police officers roadside differentiate between drunk people and sober people, or now impaired people and non-impaired people. And there's a lady by the name of Dr. Marceline Burns. And Dr. Marcy Burns is famous uh, with defense attorneys across America because we know Dr. Burns as the mother of field sobriety tests. So what happened was this. In 1975, she's awarded a contract by the Department of Transportation to go around the country, spend a couple years going around to the country, and to come up with and catalog all the different types of field sobriety tests, and then figure out which ones were the best, which ones can be done in about five minutes or less, which ones were sensitive to alcohol, which ones had low false alarm or false arrest rates. And some of the field sobriety tests that she found, uh, including the ones that are currently used, the walk and turn, the one leg stand, the horizontal gaze nystagmus, those were, were, are used. But there were some, and I have this study, I'm not making this up, I have this study, this is a 1977 study that was published. Um, now with the internet, you can grab this stuff. Tongue twisters. Uh, police officers would ask <laughs> motorists to, to do tongue twisters, say, Methodist Episcopal Sophisticated Statistics was a field sobriety test that was used in America. Count backwards by threes, starting at 102, a field sobriety test. A coin pickup, where the officer would place the coins on the pavement and ask you to pick up the the lowest denomination to the highest denomination. And if somehow wow. you bungled that, you would be impaired or intoxicated. Did you get to keep the coins? <laughs> so Dr. Burns... Um, Marcy Burns wound up deciding that she was going to put these field sobriety tests through um, some volunteers. So she had 238 volunteers that she paid them $3 an hour, 168 men, 73 women, the the ages from 20 all the way to age 71. So you have 238 subjects. Police are recruited from the LA, various LA police agencies. She dosed out the volunteers with alcohol, 60% orange juice, 40% 80 proof vodka, had them all drink three drinks over a 90 minute period. All right. Then the officers were asked to come in and estimate by looking at the people, estimate their blood alcohol level, whether or not they were impaired and to, uh, and asked to make an arrest or don't arrest decision. And some interesting notes from Dr. Burns in this 1977 study. Number one, I found it interesting. Some individuals were unable or unwilling to drink the amount of alcohol offered. Wow. Now, what are the screwdrivers, what we call those, right? Yeah. So three screwdrivers. And these are people that signed up to be part of a study knowing they were going to be drinking subjects. And they, I guess they couldn't put down three screwdrivers in 90 minutes. <laughs> so um, that was one interesting note. Number two... Um, <laughs> She she didn't do this all at once, so she did. They brought in these subjects over a period of time, over many months, and she and I quote: "There was a slight skewing over time, the result of the tendency for heavy drinkers to fail to keep appointments. It was repeatedly necessary to reschedule the heavy drinkers. More of the heavy drinkers had to be tested during the last sessions as opposed to the earlier sessions. Really fascinating." what does she find from her 238 subjects? 
she published and sent back to NHTSA, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, that she found three field sobriety tests that were reliable. The walk and turn, the one-leg stand, and the pen in front of the eyes, the horizontal gaze nystagmus. But what was buried in there was a false arrest rate of 47%. Wow. She quotes, she put in her publication back to the federal government, obviously an error rate of 47% in making arrests is not acceptable. Almost half of the officer's decisions to arrest were erroneous. So that's that. those field sobriety tests are the same ones we're dealing with and using today. And she is on record of saying almost half are false arrests. Tongue twisters, count backwards by threes, coin pickup, didn't make the cut. But some, how bad were those? They didn't make the that's, cut. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But standing one leg. So what do we now know? The one leg stand boasts a reliability rate of 65%. The walk and turn boasts a reliability rate rate of 68%. Now, Eric, when you brought home a test score when you were a kid with a 68%, did did Mrs. Wilson put that on the fridge? Uh, usually, I was unable to watch television until uh, my next report card came out. So you missed all mm. of Chips. All of Chips, which was somewhat a good thing. Well, Chips is back. Did uh, Chips movies out. So somewhere in 1981, Mad is born, gets really big, and then we have this major transportation bill in the 83, which um, raised the drinking age 21, made the blood alcohol level for all states to be a .100, and dropped the national speed limit to 55. And I remember because I was watching, you know, as a kid, I knew, and I was going to be graduating from high school, and my drinking age when I go to Miami University might be boosted to 21 on me. Uh, that seemed unfair. But they did grandfather in those of us that had turned 18. And so our drinking age actually was 18. So it's this big transportation bill. What does this big transportation bill that many of our listeners probably recall? And by the way, Ohio was the last state to sign off on that transportation bill. What does this have to do with field sobriety tests? Well, in this transportation bill, they wanted to put field sobriety test training manual. And someone looked at her studies and said, holy cow, 47% false arrest rate? Marcy Burns, get back at it. Get us some better, better tests. These stink. Well, after the break, I'll tell you what they did after the 1981 study. Brad Koffel for the defense. Welcome back. I'm attorney Brad Koffel. With the Coffle Law Firm, this is for the defense. Every Sunday morning at 11, we break down legal issues, criminal law issues. In the studio with me is attorney Eric Willison. We're talking DUI, and before the break, we were talking about these field sobriety tests, and um, there are two major studies conducted by a Dr. Marceline Burns, Marcy Burns. She's famous in the criminal and DUI uh, defense attorney world. And um, Dr. Burns' first study came out, came out with a 47% false arrest rate based upon L.A. police officers in this controlled environment with known dosed subjects, a 47% false arrest rate on the field sobriety test. Link that up with the major transportation bill of, of 1982-83 that was coming through Congress and the desire to uh, have a manual, uniform, standardized field sobriety testing uh, um, student handbook for all police officers to use in the country. Someone 
looked at her 1977 study, read it, and saw that 47% false arrest rate and said, uh, we need something better than this. So they recommissioned Dr. Burns to do a new study. They paid her $205,000. Wow. She went back to the drawing board. She got 297 drinking volunteers, so 13 more, 14 more than her first study. But she dosed the subjects in her second study even higher. So she mm-hmm. got them even drunker. To, in, in, in a skeptic like myself might say, to make your false arrest rate drop. If yeah. someone's n- very drunk, then you're not going to have false arrest Should rates. have been under the same conditions. What does she find? By even after dosing the subjects even with more alcohol, she was she found a forty three percent false arrest rate. It dropped four percent from forty seven to forty three percent false arrest rate. So that goes back, but now they're out of time. They have this major transportation bill. They're out of time. They jammed through the standardized field sobriety tests. They they were were put through that transportation bill in eighty three. The exact same tests that Doctor Burns found with. 47% false arrest rate in 77, 43% false arrest rate in 81 are now still with us in 2017. The horizontal gaze nystagmus that feel the, the uh, pen in front of the eyes um, is widely regarded as the number one indicator of central nervous system impairment and whether or not your eyes move like a marble over glass or a marble over sandpaper. It has a 77% reliability, also known as a 23% margin of error. That's their best tool. It's 23% margin of error. The walk and turn test, certainly, you know, you, we, we, I've tried a lot of these cases to juries. Hopefully, you, Trooper, you've got something better than this on your in your toolkit, something a little better than 77%. Tell me you did something else. I did. I did the walk and turn test. How'd she do there? Well, your client didn't do very well on the walk and turn test. She failed. Well, what's the reliability rate on the walk and turn test? It's 68%. Excuse me? It's 68%. So it's even lower. Even lower. All right. Well, please tell me you did something... There's got to be a really good instrument in your in your roadside toolkit for, to determine whether or not to arrest my client. What'd you do next? Well, I did the one leg stand. What's the one leg stand performance? She did poorly. Well, what's the training manual say about the reliability of the one leg stand? It's sixty five percent. It's getting worse. If DNA, if DNA had reliability rates of seventy seven, sixty eight, or sixty five percent. We would not be letting men out of prison on murder and DNA. We wouldn't be talking about giving them millions of dollars for false arrests. But for all of us, the number one crime committed, the number one serious crime committed in America is DUI. And we're using these blunt instruments on people, and they have no bearing on reality. Two things. These studies, uh, 77 to 81, were done in a a vacuum. None of the research simulated real-life testing conditions, i.e., the fear of going to jail. Morgan, what we talked about a little mm-hmm. bit earlier. This missing premise negates the entire validity of roadside field sobriety tests and contributes to false arrest. Why? Fear is hardwired into our ancient brain. Fear is a condition, as we all know, that sets off biological responses, forces us to adapt to the stressful situation. That is hardwired into our brain. It's uncontrollable. And whenever we get into an unpredictable, adverse event, then stress kicks in and a whole bunch of chemicals start floating through the body. Fear activates our stress and our stress hormones affect our brain chemistry temporarily, increase our heart rate, blood sugar, blood pressure, changes in our fine motor skill activity. Because of the woolly mammoth that's chasing you through through the, the flatlands, 
you don't need to be able to stand on one leg. You need to be able to run really fast. So your fine motor skills kind of take a back seat and your gross motor skills get better. Police officers are testing what? Fine motor skills, not gross motor skills. So that ancient part of our brain kicks in, fight, flight, or freeze. We lose our normal mental and physical faculties, and those are the exact faculties that are judged by police officers in these DUI tests. Were any of these tests conducted at 2 in the morning? No, they're all, in a, they're all, no, they're all daytime, well-rested, well-fed, no threat of arrest. Well-lit. So your brain actually switches. This is fascinating. When you get into this fear mode, the lights behind you, police officers, 2 o'clock in the morning, your, your whole life is flying um, in front of you. Mm-hmm. Your brain actually switches from memory retrieval mode to memory consolidation mode. What does that mean? Your brain wants you to recall this specific stressful event so that you don't wander into this event again. And, and as a result of that memory consolidation, memory retrieval gets subordinated. Yeah. So you have a very difficult time retrieving things that you should know easily. Because you're just thinking, I have to pay attention to what's happening now. Right. It all turns off automatically. It becomes very difficult to to just have a normal conversation with this this man on the side of the road, this police officer. You, You now have this fear and anxiety interferes with your ability to hear, your ability to recall, your ability to execute. Yes, man, we are highly developed species. We are still animals controlled by instincts. And our number one instinct is fear. Fear to keep us alive, fear for survival. In a civilized country uh, here in America, the the most fearful thing we may have will be having our liberty taken from us, Mm -hmm. having our cars towed, losing our driver's license. So this fear response is not learned. It's not voluntary. It kicks into full gear when we see these flashing lights behind us. And we have profound temporary motor skill impairment. And it manifests itself in the police reports in the form of write-ups like confused, disoriented, not paying attention. It becomes very difficult. So, you know, what's the answer, Eric? You know, everyone wants to know, what do you do on a DUI traffic stop? And I don't know what what your advice is, but I'm going to hear yours. Then we'll close with mine. My advice is to always be polite and respectful to the police officer but you don't want to answer any questions about whether you've been drinking or dri- and, uh, drinking and driving. Sometimes it's not clear that you are driving. But the point is never lie to the police officer if he says, have you been drinking? But just say, look, I don't want to answer any questions. I know you're doing your job. I just want to go. Am I free to go? You never want to take any roadside tests. We call those roadside dancing. You just don't want to be a dancer. So don't try to test your way. Don't try to talk your way out of these things. You want to get arrested as quickly as possible. of the time, you are probably going to be picked up by a loved one who will take you home that night. And we can invite all this out in court later. Yeah, my I'm a little different. And this just goes to show that the lawyers who do this all the time have different advice. Mine's pretty simple. Got to get out of the car. So get out of the car. You're standing there and they want you to do the field sobriety test. You say three things. I've done nothing wrong. I'll do whatever you want. I feel like I need to talk to a lawyer first. Just end it there. They'll arrest you. They'll take you down to the police station. And then whether or not to take a breath test, hopefully you can get a hold of a lawyer that will tell you what to do and handle, handle that situation. That's a very fact-specific question. And it's very, yeah, and it, and, it, and it can be, if you're a commercial truck driver, it could, be, it could be fatal to your CDL to refuse to take a breath test. But I'll do whatever you want. I've done nothing wrong. I feel like I need to talk to a lawyer. That's our show for today. Sunday, every Sunday, 11 a.m., for the defense with attorney Brad Koffel. Eric Willison, thanks for joining me. 610 WTVN. We'll see you next Sunday. Hug your kids.